0: The first reading is chapter 8 of Isaiah. It's on page 692 of the Church Bibles. Page 692, and it's Isaiah chapter 8. The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Meher Hash Hashbaz. And I will call in Uriah the priest and Zechariah, son of Jeberechiah as reliable witnesses for me. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Meher Shalal Hashbaz, before the boy knows how to say, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again cause this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore the lord is about to bring against them the mighty flood waters of the river the king of assyria with all his pomp it will overflow all its channels run over all its banks and sweep on into judah swirling over it passing through it and reaching up to the neck its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land O Emmanuel, raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, Do not call conspiracy everything these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see any distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: The second reading is taken from the prophet Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. It continues on page 693 of our Church Bibles. To us a child is born. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For, as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdened them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks.
2: Well, thank you to both of you for reading, and perhaps particularly to Tim for those uh, those names. He got quite a collection to get through, especially Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. So well done. I know my wife Katie is reading this evening. She was practicing early this morning. Um, as we begin, shall we bow our heads and pray? Lord Jesus Christ, you are the head of this church. You're the head of the universal church. And we find our unity in you. We are fed from you. We pray that you would be our teacher by your spirit as we open your scriptures now for your namesake. Amen. Well, do keep um, that Isaiah passage open, page 692-693. That's where we're going to be camping out for for this sermon. But let me begin by asking a few questions. In an insecure world, uh, where can one turn for security? Uh, When things feel out of control, uh, where or to whom can one look to have things brought back under control? Well, uh, chapter 8 particularly is written to answer exactly those questions and chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. And the living God of the universe, the God of the Bible, gives us a definitive answer to both questions. And we see it through the prism of a man who is floundering to answer them, King Ahaz. More of him a little bit later. But before we look in detail at this passage, we need to get our bearings in this wonderful book. I don't know how many of you have ever read the book of Isaiah from cover to cover. It's, it's large, I think that's one of the first things that strikes you, it's a large book in every sense of the word. Firstly, it, it does just have 66 chapters, and even within one chapter it can be confusing as to what exactly is in view. It's large, it's rich, it's really majestic. But secondly, it's large in terms of its scope and the things of which it speaks, So I think reading the book of Isaiah is rather like, if you've ever used a pinhole camera, remember using one in a physics lesson years ago, it's rather like that, because we look through a small hole, aperture, and you can see a huge vista beyond, small hole, large view. And with Isaiah, we end up looking at what may at first appear like obscure Israelite history, irrelevant to us, a very small particular hole, but if we look through that lens... We can see a huge vista beyond, and it's wonderful, breathtaking, terrifying at once. And you'll, you'll know, if you know Isaiah at all, chapter 1, verse 2, speaks of heaven and earth and, and beckoning them to listen, the greatest possible scale. Come and listen, heaven and earth, to this story. And the end, chapter 66, talks about the new heavens and the new earth. So the scale and the scope of the book of Isaiah is universal, and it is eternal, I trust the rest of this series will be wonderful and do us a lot of good. But second of all, we need a little bit of a history lesson. So if you're sitting comfortably, then I'll begin. Okay, so it's a history lesson for this passage here and also partly for the rest of the book. Now, ever since the kingdom of Israel was split in two after the reign of Solomon, you had the northern kingdoms much larger, sometimes in the book of Isaiah called Ephraim or Israel, And then the southern kingdom called Judah, the seat of King David. And ever since that split, both kingdoms were much more vulnerable and fragile on the international scale. Smaller, more vulnerable. The weak sheep to be picked on. And Isaiah comes onto the stage, as we may remember if we were here last week, as King Uzziah, similar name, different man, as King Uzziah dies. Now, King Uzziah's reign was prosperous He reigned for a long time, and Judah exploited its wonderful positioning on trade routes during that time. They became rich and fast. And as so often happens, wealth brought with it moral slackness. Justice could be bought and sold. Religion became hypocritical, just a thing of show, maybe high days and holy days and nothing more. And uh, the situation in Judah was bleak. God has been long forgotten by the time Isaiah comes to the stage. And then the international scene had something of a shake-up. And as we read through Isaiah, we'll see a number of these big shake-ups on the international scene. But particular to this passage here, what happened was that the northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim, and another kingdom, Damascus, decided to make a pact with one another. They said, we're stronger together let's buddy up, let's be friends on the international scale, a sort of EU agreement treaty. And they approached King Ahaz in the southern kingdom and said, look, do you want to join? We don't have such stringent economic um, demands as the EU. Come and join us, we'll be stronger together. And Ahaz said, "Mm, thank you very much. No, I don't think I will. And they said, all right, well, we'll invade you then. And we'll replace you with a more pliable puppet king on your throne. And that's the situation Ahaz is facing in chapter 8 as Isaiah speaks with him. And it's it's quite a difficult situation for him. He's facing exactly those questions we began with. Whom can you turn to in a time of insecurity? He's about to be invaded, or so he thinks. And whom can you turn to when things feel out of control? He's scared. And he seems to have two options before him. The first is to make an alliance with the growing super state of Assyria. To say, please would you be my big brother in the international playground and protect me from the bullies, Damascus and Israel. He's weighing that one up. The second option Isaiah brings to him, and it's this. He says, trust that the Lord your God will keep you safe. Trust that the promises he's made to your nation, Judah, he'll fulfill. So those are the two choices, and that sets the scene for this passage. Um, Isaiah comes onto the scene, and he rebukes Ahaz for making the wrong decision, as we discover. Now, if you're a note-taker, you'll find my headings on the back of the notice sheet as normal, and I've got two main headings, the first looking at Ahaz the man and what we can learn from him In our own decision making, the second main heading, Ahaz the king, and what we can learn of Christ through his poor example. Ahaz the man and us. Under this heading, we're going to look at three temptations he faces and fails. The first temptation Ahaz the man faces is this, common sense versus God's promises, verses 1 to 10. Common sense versus trusting God's promises. Now, let me be clear at the very outset. When I say common sense, I mean a godless common sense, a common sense that writes God out of the equation. Okay, so Ahaz is torn between these two choices. I could make a pact with Assyria. It's the common sense option. It seems like the responsible thing to do. Or he could trust God's promises. That's the choice he's got before him. And Isaiah comes onto the scene. He gives him two terrifying signs. And the first one revolves around that difficult name, Maha Shalal Hashbaz. So this first sign revolving around his son uh, happens like this. He goes to his wife, called the prophetess here, they conceive, they have a son, and they choose an odd name. The name wasn't popular then, it isn't popular now. It's never been in the top ten names this year, last year, or I dare say the year before that. The point of this name is not that it's pretty or handsome or nice, it's that it's a sign, a potent sign. And it means, if you look at your footnote, swift to the plunder and quick to the spoil. And the point Isaiah is making with his son's name here, he's saying, Ahaz, you know Assyria, whom you're making this pact with? They are going to be plundering and quick to the spoil of your nation and Damascus and the northern kingdom of Israel don't make a pact with them. It's going to be a mistake. They're going to destroy you. Look at my son's name. I know it's odd. Do you remember what it means? Do you see the first sign? It's quite terrifying. The second sign in verses 1 to 10 revolves around water and streams. Uh, Verse 6, Ahaz has rejected the flowing waters of Shiloh. Now, the flowing waters of Shiloh, Shiloh is a bubbling, gentle, lovely brook in the local area. And it represents God's promises, God's help, God's way. A nice, gentle, bubbling brook. And what Ahaz has done here is reject God's bubbling brook of help. And he's turned rather to the raging waters that represent Assyria. And he said, "Now I'd quite like them to come and help me. And what Ahaz thinks is that Assyria, uh, the river of Assyria, if you like, is going to come gently in to help him and then gently retreat back. But what Isaiah is warning him, he's saying, no, no, it's going to be a repeat of the Christmas floods in Somerset two Christmases ago if you do that. The raging waters of Assyria are not going to stop at your borders. They're going to come right in and almost drown everyone up to the neck. So don't make a pact with Assyria. Don't choose the godless common sense option. Trust God's promises. And the thing is, we know that Ahaz made the wrong choice. We've got the benefit of hindsight. We can read that in the history books and in the rest of this book, Isaiah. He made the wrong choice. And it wasn't as if he wasn't warned. Isaiah's there saying it's going to be disastrous. And it was disastrous if you know your history. Just a few years later, Assyria were right on the borders of uh, Judah, uh, holding them in a, in a, um, uh, a choking lock and a siege. And it was terrifying. They were almost ruined by the pact that he made. So the question is, why did he make the wrong choice? Why did he do it, given that he was warned so clearly? But let's be careful not to cast the first stone here as I just apply this point. Because isn't the common-sense option in life so tempting all the time for us as well as for Ahaz? It's the world's way of thinking. It predicts the future on the basis of a godless world. So it says, what's going to happen in the future? Well, it's always going to be based on maybe the forces of capitalism or the weather or culture. It takes the world as a closed universe and writes God and his promises out of the equation. They won't have any bearing on this. It's godless common sense. And I think it's very easy to fall into ourselves. But Isaiah here reminds us it's the very definition of foolishness. For God is there, and his promises are the main movers and shakers in world history. His promises always come true. And so if we don't base our decision-making on God's promises, we will come a cropper. That's what the book of Isaiah here in verses 1 to 10 is saying. It makes me think of Noah building a boat in a landlocked country. Why? Only because God promised there'd be a flood. It makes me think of Gideon going to fight the tens of thousands in the Midianite armies with 300 men. That's foolishness, isn't it? Well, no, he was trusting God's promise that he would give him victory. And ever since then, it's been the same. Trusting God's promises is the way to live in God's world. It made me think of the song we sung earlier, Proverbs 3, verse 5, with Timo. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's the first temptation for Ahaz, common sense, trusting God's promises. The second one, common fears versus the fear of God. Common fears versus the fear of God, verses 11 to 15. I'm going to read verse 11 to 13. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. Why? The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. You see, it turns out that God denying common sense springs from God denying common fears. Common fears. It's a very powerful temptation, this one. The people of Judah are looking at armies gathering on their borders, rather like uh, Ukraine at the moment with the separatists. And they're worried, they're afraid, and they think we're going to die here. And Isaiah comes onto the scene here in these verses and he says, don't be afraid. You can imagine the conversation, can't you? Don't be afraid, we could die. Have you seen those armies and tanks on the borders? He says, no, I didn't say I didn't say don't be afraid. I said just make sure you're afraid of the right person. Realign your fears. Remember, verse 13, whom you are to fear. Do not fear what everyone else fears. Fear the Lord your God. He is the one you are to regard as holy. And Ahaz is in danger of fearing the wrong things. Very easy to fall into that trap, don't you find? I find it. Let's take a few little examples. God promises that the way to fullness of life is obeying his commands. He promises that in John's Gospel. But there I am in the workplace, in the office, and maybe I I work in finance, I work in some secular area. And as a Christian, I notice some morally corrupt behavior in my office. And as a Christian, I've got to put my hand up and, and, and say, sorry, I don't think that's right. But then the fears start to creep in, don't they? Presumably. And we fear the consequences. What if I start to be labeled as a troublemaker? What if, I, what if I'm made redundant? The fears start to creep in. And it's hard to trust the promise at that time. But Isaiah says, don't fear what everyone else fears. Trust his promises that it's the best way to live. Fear the Lord your God. He will look after you. Or to take a second example, God promises, doesn't he, wonderfully that death is not the end for the person who's found to be in Christ. But let me say this as a young man with all the caveats involved there. As we get older, that becomes a hard promise to hold on to sometimes when people die around us. And it's very easy to hold those common fears that the rest of the world fears, But Isaiah says, please don't fear what they fear. Don't fear death. We know that Christ went through the grave and was raised again. Three days later, he'll hold you safe. Don't fear what they fear. Because when we fear death, we start to become self-pitying, maybe over-anxious. Don't fear death. Remember whom you are to fear. The Lord your God is holy. He is the one you are to fear. One of the most special moments for me at Michael Bennett's Thanksgiving was the final hymn, Thine Be the Glory. And at the end, a number of hands were raised in the air as we were singing that hymn, and we sung this line, uh, um, Thine be the glory, risen, conquering son, endless is the victory, thou, o death, has won. It was a wonderful moment of claiming God's promise for Michael and for us. And that next little line, he will be a sanctuary. Do you see that just down there in verse 14? Now, the sanctuary in the Old Testament was the place where you could run to if you were in danger. In 1 Kings 1, there's a great guy called Abanijah who runs to the altar and holds the horns of the altar, and he's protected because he's there. It's the place we're to run to in the Old Testament for safety. But in the New Testament, we're not told to run to a place. The temple doesn't exist anymore. We're told to run to a person. We're told to run to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our strong tower we're tempted to fear what others fear, run to him and he'll protect us. The third temptation Ahaz faced, I've called it neo-spiritualism versus God's testimony, verses 19 to 22. Verse 19, it seems that under Ahaz there was something of a revival in spiritism or I suppose we might call it the occult, the occult and in one sense you can understand it because when we're pushed In our fears, beyond where we're normally used to being pushed, we go to greater lengths to find comfort, don't we, and guidance and reassurance. And it seems that the people of Judah had turned to Ouija boards and spiritism, and it was all darkness. And Isaiah is mystified by it. He says, why would you turn to the dead to get guidance for the living? Why not go to the Lord your God? He uses vivid images of light and dark. Did you notice that? Because the people thought as they turned to the occult, they were reaching for a pair of spiritual speck glasses to see the world better. But in actual fact, Isaiah says they reached for a spiritual blindfold. They ended up in darkness. Verse 22 is deeply ironic. Did you see the irony there? They could see only darkness. Utter darkness darkness it's it's an image Jesus picks up in the New Testament for hell and Isaiah is saying don't run from God he's made himself sufficiently clear in his testimony in the scriptures why are you not opening your Bibles I was convicted by that personally not just Ahaz when we're under the kosh, under pressure worried I'm so slow to open this book the Bible so slow I turn to all sorts of other things for my comfort and my guidance. But it's a rebuke to me. There it is, the testimony, not neo-spiritism, but the scriptures. So that's Ahaz the man and us. And more briefly, and I hope more wonderfully, Ahaz the king and Christ, verses 1 to 7 of chapter 9. Sometimes bad imitations make us long for the real deal. So if you've ever had Tesco Basics, orange juice, and you catch a whiff of Tropicana, you will always want to have Tropicana. If you have a fake Rolex that runs slow and you pass that jeweler's just down the road, you'll want the real deal, whether or not you can afford it. Sometimes imitations make us long for the real deal. And the way the Old Testament often points us forward to Christ is in that way it points us to. Wrong imitations of Christ, leaving us wanting the real deal Christ, the real king we're all waiting for and longing for. And here we've been hanging out with King Ahaz. It doesn't take much to see that he's not the real deal. He's an imitation king. He's not the real Messiah, the king they've been waiting for. He's a bad imitation, too much like us, to be any good. Common sense over God's promises, common fears over the fear of God. And neo-spiritism over God's testimonies. And chapter 9 is the moment our eyes lift and we can afford a smile and we can afford to relax because we catch a glimpse of the real deal king, the Christ child. Did you notice the contrasts between Ahaz and Christ? They're both in the line of David, chapter 9, verse 7. And yet everything Ahaz does badly, Christ does well. Ahaz will bring defeat, whereas this king will bring victory, verse 3. Ahaz brings war, but this one brings peace, verse 4. Ahaz brought poverty, but this one brings riches, verse 3. Ahaz brought spiritual darkness, but this one brings light, verse 2. Ahaz, a man like us, Christ, mighty God, verse 6. And even more than that, we know from the Gospels that this Christ child grew up to succeed where you and I fail. He never chose godless common sense over trusting his Father's promises. Do you remember that? Even on the, on, on, in the run into the cross, not, your will, but, not my will but yours be done, he prayed in Gethsemane, trusting God's promises. And now by his Spirit, he reminds us of those same promises so we can trust them. He never chose common fears over the fear of his heavenly Father. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And now, by his Spirit, he enables us to fear God more than those around us, more than the common fears we're surrounded with. He never chose neo spiritism over the testimonies, over the scriptures. Do you remember, age 12? He was found in the temple listening to the teaching from God's word, the Bible. He knew his Bible so well, he quoted it even in the hour of his death. On the road to Emmaus, he was able to open up the scriptures with no aids, no Bible study guides to those two disciples, explaining how it was that he had to die and rise again from the dead. And so as I close, he's the king Ahaz failed to be. He is the king we all long for, the ruler we want to follow, the one we want to imitate. And so in times of insecurity, Ahaz, us, to whom can we turn? It's to him, is it not? He's our strong tower, our sanctuary, the one in whom the promises are fulfilled. In times when life just feels out of control, to whom can we turn? Is it not to him? I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you you are the one we long for, you are the one we want to follow, and we praise you that you've come to us, you've given yourself to us. We want to hold before you various fears that we're struggling not to fear, various godless common sense lines of reasoning that we're struggling to fight against, struggling to trust your promises. Please help us by your spirit. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.